0: Good morning, I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant, and I'd also like to welcome you if you're visiting, we're glad to have you with us this morning. If you are just coming to us, we're coming in the middle of, uh, near the end of a series on the book of James. We've been here for the last number of months. Last week we uh, looked at a different passage as we were celebrating our 25th anniversary as a church, but now we're back at James. I was reminded how familiar James has become to us this week when Elizabeth, my wife, and I were talking about the passage for this week. And I turned to her and said, well, you know, Jim says so-and-so. And And she said, Jim, you guys have really gotten tight over these past few months. So total slip, but James is where we are. And this morning we'll be in chapter 4. You'll find that on page 1012 if you're using one of our pew Bibles. Camper uh, led us in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, two weeks ago. But we're going to read through that again as we concentrate more this week on verses 7 through 10. But as we prepare to read, let's first come to the Lord in prayer. Please pray with me. Lord, we come to you this morning. As always, people in need of hearing from you. We need you to reveal yourself to us, and you do that to us uh, through the pages of Scripture. This is your word to us. Would you make it come alive this morning by the power of your Spirit? Would you use it for its good purpose of convicting and changing and comforting Drawing us to you, and we ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Amen. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. So to it we turn again this morning. Let me ask you the question, do you ever find, even if you were someone who has uh, who, made a profession of faith in Christ, you're somebody who's, who's consciously trying to follow God, do you ever feel like there is that tension that rises up in your life when you realize that though that may be your proclamation, you still struggle so deeply to really follow God with the whole heart. That you look around the evidence of your life this week, this morning, the past half hour. You realize just how much and how deeply you really do struggle. You struggle with uh, the sin and temptation that comes to you. You struggle with obedience in many ways. And James speaks to us this morning because that is true. And it's true of all of us. And he, you know, he spells that out in some dramatic ways which we're going to turn to in a minute. But let me just say now that this passage is about, you know, God coming to us, speaking to us, invading our lives in the midst of the very real reality of our ongoing struggle with sin and struggle with following after our God. He speaks uh, to us. So we're going to see this morning, James addresses first this dilemma that we have as people who claim the name of Christ, but still very much struggle. Our dilemma speaks to us about God's way through our dilemma, and then he speaks to us also of God's provision for us in our dilemma. So first, our dilemma is people following God. James spells this out in, in very graphic ways, these first six verses. I mean, verse 1, he talks about us as being people whose passions are at war within us. When James speaks of this, he's not just talking about uh, what are often for us very legitimate passions, very legitimate desire. There's a way we, we, we rightly appreciate a person of passion, and that's not what James means. He talks about when our desires, even good desires, grab a hold of us and overrun our lives, when they take over, when they become controlling desires for us. He says our passions are at war within us. He goes on and says, you know this erupts in in uh quarrelling and fighting in murder. James is likely speaking metaphorically, but he knows as he follows Jesus who said you know when you when you speak harshly against a brother, you are murdering him in your heart James says to the church he says, You are people we are people who struggle with this stuff he goes on verse four and he says The heart of your problem is the fact that you are friends with the world. Now, we use the word friend fairly loosely. It can be any sort of acquaintance of ours. If you've been sucked into uh, you know, the internet world of Facebook, then you might have four million friends, people maybe you've never actually met face-to-face. But when James says a friend, he's talking about somebody that you are closely and intimately tied with, somebody whose life is going in the same direction as yours, someone who is close. He says, how can you be friends with the world turned against God and with God that they just don't go together? Those, those two friendships are incompatible. But, but get James's point. He's talking to the church. He says... You become friends with the world. And he starts to use very strong language again, and, and this is an important point, as he speaks to Christians in the midst of this. Verse 4, he says, you adulterous people. Okay, there's, there's an attention getter, right? James, throughout the letter, has been saying things like this. Dear brothers, you know, my dearest brothers, beloved brothers. And now he says to us, as we wrestle with our sin, he says, you adulterous people. He goes on in verse 8 and calls, again, these people, us, the church, he says, he calls us sinners, calls us double-minded. If you remember back in chapter 1, he had spoken against the one who's double-minded, who asks God for something but doesn't trust him to give it. He says, you're like a wave that's tossed by the sea. James has very strong language to speak into our real dilemma. as people who name the name of Christ very much struggle with the realities of our lives and our sin. And let let, let me just give you a few ways that plays out. That's why, for example, that's why you can open up the papers and there are so many stories of pastors who fall into moral failure of all kinds, leaving wives, leaving children, leaving ministry, taking their lives over a cliff. James is speaking into that. It's why, they're, uh, it's why upstanding church members do things that land them on television. And you see interviews with neighbors saying things like, she's the last one I would have ever expected to do this. Never would have thought. And it's why uh, you can, when you first come to faith, maybe that happened for you in younger days. Maybe it happened in college. It's why you can first come to faith and you have such a beautiful and compelling picture of what it is going to mean to live a life In relationship with God, giving all of your life to Him. It's why you could come through college and be a part of InterVarsity or RUF or another campus ministry and learn so much about following God and leave school for example with this picture of God calls God calls me to live all of my life before him and that means that, that that my faith in him has to pervade everything about my career and everything about the choices that I make as I follow a career in law or in medicine in business in making a home whatever it is you come out with this picture of all of life is to be lived for God's glory and we have this beautiful picture and then you find after 10 or 20 or 30 years, you look around at your life and you realize maybe how small and restricted your vision for your life in the world has become. It was once so grand as you looked at the picture of God, of God's desire for us, and now you look around and it's, it's shrunk down to the size of your professional success, or the quality of what's in your wardrobe, or that next new car, or your 401k, or how your middle schooler is doing In math class, you know, suddenly things can shrink down. And it's why uh, we can be lifelong followers of Jesus, and yet we can become people who are so often very testy and petty and hard. It's why we can have trouble remembering what we read that very morning in Scripture, maybe, as you have a quiet time of reading Scripture and praying. You can't can't remember what you read this morning, but you can remember what that person said to you in a small group Bible study two years ago that just got on your skin and has festered made you bitter and it's a weight that you carry around every day of your life. It's why we can sing with gusto on a Sunday morning and then at the same time, an hour later, spend our ride home lost in gossip and criticism and evaluation of all the things and all the people we saw this morning. You see, when James writes this and he speaks about adulterous Christians, those who are trying to be friends with the world, sinners and double-minded brothers and sisters, he's talking about us. He's talking about me. He's talking about you. It's talking about our ongoing struggle of following God. That is our dilemma. So what do we do? What does James point us to? God's way through our dilemma. And the short way of saying this is a lifestyle of repentance. What does James say to us as we are ongoing strugglers with our sin? He says we have to become people always stepping into a lifestyle of real repentance. Now, the way we're going to talk about repentance this morning, we've got to remember that repentance, as we talk about repenting of our sin, repenting of, of the ways that we, we drift from our God, repentance always has involves two motions at the same time. It involves a turning away from something, and it involves a turning towards something else. So as we repent of things in our life that we know are wrong, we, we turn away from them, but it's simultaneously we also turn towards our God. We turn away from the things we know that cause destruction, calls us away from, we turn, we turn toward our God who is calling to us and bringing us to himself in his mercy and his grace. We turn away from our sin and we turn back continually to the hope and promise of the gospel that God's grace and forgiveness is for sinners just like us, turning to Jesus. So it's always a turning away and a turning from. And I think the way James lays this out for us, we're going to look at it as sort of sort of three aspects of this turning away and turning from that God's uh, way through our dilemma this repentance it involves going under going near and going deep. Okay, going under, going near and going deep. And with each of these I'll try to give us a couple of biblical pictures of kind of what God the way God shows us what that means. First is go under, verse 7. Look at what he says. He says submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Go under, submit yourself. That's what the idea behind this word submission in the Greek, that's the idea that it carries, that we place ourselves under something. Now, that's not a word we readily grasp onto. You know, my goal in life is to submit myself to other things, right? Right? You know, how often, I mean, what's reinforced for us, you know, our goal in life is to be our own person. Our goal in life is to sort of maximize, you know, our self-discovery. Our goal in life is to be the king of our lives. And here the gospel comes in and says that we are to submit ourselves to God. That we are to arrange our lives underneath him. That everything in our life is to line up in relationship to our God and the image we get here in the Bible for, for a picture of what this looks like it's one that runs throughout scripture and it's the picture of God as our king God is our king um, Psalm 5 2 says this give attention to the cry to the sound of my cry my king and my God for to you do I pray Psalm 10 verse 16 says the Lord is king forever and ever 1 Timothy 1, Paul breaks out in this doxology, this praise for God. And here's what he says, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. See, the Bible holds up for us this picture of God as as our king. And the right relationship of one is we are in relationship with our God and king is to submit, to come under him. Now, the truth is we all submit to something. Even if you don't think you're submitting to God, you submit to something. I mean, there is something that is calling the shots for you in your life. There is some priority in your life around which you're organizing everything else. There is some voice in your head that you listen to that tells you, directs for you what you are going to do next. Something is most vital for you. And we arrange our lives under that. And James says to us, submit ourselves to God, to our true king. James is speaking to us as those who name the name of Christ. And he says, you know, how often is it that we maybe understand this idea of submission in one area of life or or not another? Um, Let let me just give you the example of of other relationships, and we'll come to this again later in in, in a minute. But when you think about if you're married or if you're you're contemplating marriage, when when two people get married in a very real sense, when two people walk into that relationship, both the husband and the wife are submitting themselves to a new relationship, a new reality that is now the fundamental reality for their life. Because when you get married, it's true for the husband and the wife, everything changes, right? I mean, everything changes. Everything, you have to relearn how to think about your whole life. And this is dr- driven home for me, uh, Early in my marriage with Elizabeth, I'd love to say it was like the first two weeks. Let's say it's sometime in the first three years. Early in my marriage with Elizabeth, you know, you, you get used to this idea that, okay, uh, I, you know, I'm married now. I can't just, you know, go out at night and sort of not call and remind her when I'm coming in. You, you know, there's somebody whose life I'm intimately tied to. There's, there are things you sort of, you get that after a while. But then you start to see there are ways you, you just hadn't put the pieces together. And one for me was uh, I became gradually, increasingly distractingly uh, uh, bothered by the fact that our computer, the computer we had at home, was so unbelievably slow. Okay, I mean, it just couldn't keep up with the internet. This was in the early days of the internet, still couldn't keep up. And I was really convinced that we needed a new computer, so one day I told Elizabeth, I was like, I really think we need to buy a new computer. And she said, well, okay, we'll talk about that. The very next day, I went out and bought a new computer. And I came home, and there Elizabeth comes home, and there I am in the middle of our den with this thing un, in a box, and she's like, "What is that?" That's the computer we talked about buying. <laughs> you said we should buy a computer. She said, "No." I said, "We could talk about it, you know." And and here I was suddenly caught in that moment of though my life had become submitted to this new relationship, my money <laughs> wasn't my money anymore, right? And, and more fundamentally, my spending habits just weren't mine. And suddenly I thought, you know, there's a major piece of the puzzle that I have been not paying attention to here. And how often for us do we, realize, do we not realize, even in one relationship where we can see we're submitted in one area, where we see there's this gaping hole in our understanding of what it means to really follow in a thorough, consistent way. Um, Think about the picture of an athlete in in terms of submitting. If you're going to be an athlete of any caliber, then you're going to submit yourself to a certain uh, certain way of life. You're going to submit yourself to a certain training regimen. And you're going to submit yourself even uh, to a certain diet, perhaps. There are things you're not going to eat because you know it's going to slow you down when it comes time to compete. And you're going to submit your schedule. You're going to get up early in the morning. You're going to work your life around what you need to do to attend to your sport. You know, all this stuff you're going to do. Because you realize that if you if you are going to pursue this, if you're going to, in this sense, be in relationship with this, if you're going to be an athlete in this, then you have got to submit your life to what it means to follow in those steps. And James simply speaks to us and says, if we're going to be people who know God, he says, then we have to submit ourselves. We have to place ourselves under Our king. Now, as we are people who wrestle with submitting all areas of our life to God, maybe you find it this way. Maybe you've come to faith in Christ and you've submitted your uh, dating life or your marriage or your sexuality to God, but not your finances. Or maybe you've submitted your finances to God, but not your time. Maybe your time, but not your career. Maybe you find you've submitted areas of your life, but you realize there are others that you are hanging on to, saying, this is mine, and God, you have nothing to say into this. Well, James's point is that if we're going to submit ourselves to the king, the king gets it all. He gets it all because he's king. He says, in this first step of repentance, this go under, as we come under God, as we turn towards Him, we're turning away. And James briefly just highlights that for us. He says, not only are we turning to God, submitting to Him, what does he say? Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. He says, as you are turning to God, your true king, turn away from all other false kings who would rule you, who would destroy you. He says, even as you are in the act of resisting them, ultimately, they will flee. He says, submit yourself to God. Go under. First step of repentance is we turn away and turn towards. He says, go under. And then the next thing he says is go near. Not simply go under, but go near. Look what he says in verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And you see, as soon as James says that, he ups the intensity of the images that he's using. Okay, first it was go under and submit. The relationship of a person and his king but he says this is another way of saying it is this king is a king like no other because you can be submitted to a king and you can have a king over you and never get close to that king. Never know that king at all but still be subject to his laws, living in his kingdom. But he says, it, no, it goes more than that. There is a personal relationship here. He says, draw near. It's knowing God is not less than submitting to him. But James reminds us that it is much more than simply that. There's a nearness, and intimacy, and Scripture is full of Pictures of metaphors of our intimacy with our God. And here's just two. Let's pull out. One is a friend. I'm struck by these words that Jesus says uh, at the Last Supper, when, when He is sharing a last meal with His disciples the night before He is crucified. He turns to Him, and this comes in John chapter 15, and He says this to His disciples. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father I have made known to you. What's he saying? You're not simply servants in the kingdom anymore. What does he say? You're not only that, he says, I call you not servants anymore, I call you you friends. Because knowing God and coming into relationship with him brings us into that kind of intimacy of friendship. But Jesus, even in that statement, alludes to another one. Think of Jesus' most common address to God. What does he say in his prayers, in his preaching, what does he say? father. He looks at God and calls him father with a depth of, of intimacy and connection. that was almost unknown in his day that he used it so freely and with such uh, complete sense of connection. Not only did he experience that himself, but he turns to his disciples when they say, Lord, teach us to pray. How does he start? He says, when you pray, you guys pray like this, our father who art in heaven. He says, you've come into that kind of relationship, a God who is near, not simply king, but a friend and a father. This is a central image for Paul. Romans 8, he says this, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Paul, when he talks about our coming to Christ, he says one of the most fundamental things that happens is we are adopted into God's family. We were not his children, but now we are his children. He was not our father, but now he is. See, as we repent, as we come, as we draw near to our God, not only do we put ourselves under, not only do we go under, we're exhorted to go near. And you see, this is an invitation to us. I mean, do you hear what he says? He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I mean, what would it mean for us to really take that at face value? Now, maybe some theological alarms are ringing in your head. Well, you know, I thought God was the one who had to initiate with us. He is. He does. He did. Anytime somebody comes to faith, it is because our God comes pursuing us, grabs hold of us, makes us alive, brings us into relationship. And even in the ongoing life of a Christian, God is always coming towards us, initiating with us. But let's not try to make James say something he's not saying. He's not saying God doesn't initiate with us, but he's giving us a beautiful invitation. Listen to what he says. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Draw near to him. He will meet you there. What a promise for us. But what keeps us from grabbing hold of that? And maybe this is what James is trying to speak into for us. You ever find in the middle of your sin as you begin to turn the ways in which your shame can wreck such havoc in your life. And that could be with big sins or little sins. Maybe that's you look at what's going on in your life and you say something like this. And I've heard you say it and I've thought it myself. How could God possibly forgive me for this? You know, how could he possibly welcome me home after I've done this, I've thought this, I've said this, I've let my life get out of control in this way? How could he possibly? James reminds us of the gospel. That is always true of us. We are people that far off the rails. And he says, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Do not let your shame keep you out, because it is not more powerful than the reach of the gospel and the depth of Jesus's love for you and the forgiveness that comes in Him. He speaks to us, even it caught in our sin. He says, "Draw near to God, and He'll draw near to you." Not just the big stuff, but the small stuff too. Maybe it feels, you know, more like this. You know, draw near. You know, Lord, I've been using my words badly for decades. Or God, I've been bitter and cold towards my spouse for years. Or Lord, my heart has been hard and cold for longer than I can remember. What does James tell us? Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. See, James is speaking to us in the context of repentance, of turning from our sin and turning to God, but it applies more broadly as well. I mean, I think in many ways this is an open-ended invitation to God's people. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. God can be known. There is more for us. There's more depth of relationship. There's more closeness. There's more intimacy. And maybe we're experiencing even at this moment. And that means it's good news, too, for those who feel spiritually dry and distant and cold. Uh, a number of years ago, I, I finally took a large box that was filled with the journals that I had written in college. And there are multiple ones of them. I'm still astounded at the uh, verbosity with which I could reflect on my own inner life during my college years. <laughs> finally threw them away because I knew if anybody asked me about my journals, I could basically boil it down to two things. All those pages, two things. One, Lord, help me. I don't understand the ins and outs of my dating life. And number two, you know, Lord, I just feel so distant and dry. Where are you? Won't you come near? You know? And I know many of you have that experience often. I, we've had those conversations over coffee too. This is an invitation to us. It says, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. That point in which you are doubting, is there really more for me than this? Does He really care? James reminds us that yes, He does. He invites us in. Step close, and He steps close to us. And as we talk about drawing near, going near, He points us to a couple of concrete actions. One in particular, uh, and a very practical one for us, maybe as, as we struggle with some of the specifics of our sin. Look what He says there in verse 8. He says, cleanse your hands. He says, cleanse your hands. Goes on to talk about purifying your heart. Should remind us of our call to worship from Psalm 24. Talks about, you know, who may ascend the hill of the Lord, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. James says to us as we wrestle, he says, cleanse your hands. What might that mean for us? Well, maybe some very practical things. If you find yourself struggling with pornography, get an internet filter for your computer. Sign up for something like Covenant Eyes that sends a report of your internet activity to somebody else who can hold you accountable. Or maybe if you've seen the movie Fireproof, do, do what the husband did in that movie. He took his computer out and he very patiently put it on top of his trash can and he pulled out his baseball bat and he went to town. <laughs> because he said, I'm not going to love this more than I love my spouse or more than I love my God. Or if you find that money has captured you you find that you're always purchasing, always having your eye on the next item of clothing, the next gadget, the next car, the better furniture. James says to has cleanse your hands. How can you start to trust God and find your joy in him and not in the things that you have and the things that you acquire? Well, maybe a couple things. One, cut up your credit card. Stop making it so easy for yourself to go spend when you know it is drawing your heart away. Maybe another thing would be um, try giving away more of your money. Don't spend it. Give it away. Give it away to the point at which you realize it alters your standard of living. You realize some of the things you would buy you can't buy anymore because the money's not in your bank account because you just went and gave it away. And it reminds you again that my life is not found in those things. God would come and free me from that. That I might be able to Spend rightly, that I might be able to use his resources well and wisely and not be enslaved by them. Give away enough that you have to know and trust that God loves you. Or maybe you're somebody who indulges in fear and anxiety and worry. James says the same thing. Cleanse your hands. Admit to God that you don't trust him to care for you. You don't trust what He's going to bring down the pike next for you. You don't think He's going to show up and meet you. You know that hard things can happen in this world and you don't think He's going to be there for you when they do. So you're anxious and afraid. James says, cleanse your hands. Take on the discipline of thanksgiving. Take on the responsibility of joy. Look your fears straight in the eye and turn away from them. Remind yourself that your God is good and call your anxiety and your fear exactly what it is a lack of faith, distrust, and sin. But the good news, James says, is that God meets real sinners, even ones like that, even sins and fears like that. So he says, if you're going to be people, if we're going to be people who are repenting or who are turning from or turning towards, he talks about those actions of coming under, coming under. Uh, in submission to our God, our King. He talks about going near to God who is who's our friend, who is our Father. And then finally, he talks about going deep. We see this in verses 8 and 9. I mean, look at, look at the, the intensity at which these commands kind of pile up. He says, not only cleanse your hands, he says, purify your hearts. We'll get to that in a minute. But then he goes on to this next verse. It'd be very easy to let it sail by or just totally misunderstand it. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. You know, maybe some, in, in the back of your mind you're thinking of something like this, Philippians 4.4, 4, where Paul says rejoice always. Again, I tell you, rejoice. How Scripture talks throughout about the joy that is found in really knowing and being in right relationship with our God. When James is speaking of joy, that's, that's not the, bib, the biblical theme he's, he's tapping into. James, who's very much indebted to books like Proverbs and the wisdom literature of the Scripture. I mean, one of the ways Proverbs plays out or describes uh, those who are caught in folly, they're those who laugh at God. Who laugh in the very midst of their own disobedience as they turn away from God and think he'll never find me, never sees it, doesn't care. The laughter of one who thinks the actions of my life have no real repercussions. James is saying to people caught in their sin, to us he says, turn away from that kind of laughing, that kind of mindless joy that is going to lead to your destruction. He says, if that's where you are, then you don't need to be laughing, you need to be mourning. Because you need to let the weight of the reality of your sins sink in. You need to see how far badly you have strayed. You need to know that God calls us to something other than this. And he says, if that's where you are, let your laughter turn to mourning. Not that we would become depressed, dour Christians. But instead, so we could train one kind of joy for a deeper kind of joy. So we can be a people who are always fundamentally rejoicing in the goodness of our God and not... And ways of life that draw us from him. So Paul, or excuse me. So James says, "Go deep, be wretched, and mourn if that is what is appropriate." But then, really, the heart here, though, is he says, "You know, purify your hearts." That's an interesting statement, isn't it? Because you know, on the one hand, when he talks about cleansing your hands, very practical about about refraining from doing the things you're doing that are wrong, or, or making adjustments in your life, cleaning things up. But you know how easy it is to clean up things on the outside and what a different story it is to talk about what's going on inside of you. You know, you're somebody who uh, is caught in a sin. Maybe you can be very disciplined and keep yourself from acting that out again, but that same desire could be running rampant in your heart just down at a level where no one else can see it. Isaiah 29, verse 13, speaks of God's people who honor Him with their lips, but whose hearts are far from Him. See, James is reminding us as we go deep that God wants more, that He wants our hearts. He wants every bit of us. When Scripture talks about the heart, the heart is uh, it's, its our will, our emotions, our passion, our intellect. It's, it's our very personality. All those concepts all rolled up into one. When the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about the core of who we are. So when James says, purify your hearts, he's saying this following after God, this deep repentance, this must come down to the very innermost parts of us. It's not simply a matter of brushing up the outside of your life, making, care, making sure you don't make those comments anymore, you don't do those actions anymore. You know, you stop speeding down Jamestown Road. He says, God cares about what's going on in your hearts and in our hearts. So here's the image here. We talked about go under with a king. We talked about go near with a friend and a father. And we talked about go deep. The picture Scripture gives us is the relationship between a husband and a wife. And in particular, the Bible throughout uses this image of a husband and a wife as an image of God's love for His people. That God is the husband and His people, the church, are His spouse. That we are married to Him. That our relationship with God is one that goes that deep. One that is that intimate. We see it in, throughout the prophets. We see it in Hosea, this uh, amazing story of this guy who's called to go marry a prostitute. God tells him to go marry a prostitute because he says, my people have prostituted themselves and I'm going to show them just how much I love them. You're going to go marry this unfaithful woman because I, God, am married to my people even though they are unfaithful to me. Ephesians five, a passage you might be familiar with, it talks a lot about the relationships between uh, husbands and wives. But at the very end of it, Paul gets down to the to the real meat of what he was the point he was trying to make. He's talking about husbands and wives, but then he says, "But I'm talking to you really about the relationship between Christ and the church." Because he says, "Marriage itself, human marriage, is, a, is actually it goes the other way is a metaphor for God's deep love for us. This marital kind of intimacy, and that's what James has in mind." When he calls these people, these struggling Christians, when he looks at us and points in our life and says, You adulteresses. Why? Because you're married. You're married to your God. The relationship is that strong and it goes that deep. C.S. Lewis in a book called The Four Loves, he talks about the different kinds of love, different kinds of relationship we have with other people. He talks about, for instance, about friendship love. And he says friends, friendships are are based around something. So the picture of a friendship is you and your friend side by side, shoulder to shoulder, looking out at something outside of you. Okay, Maybe your friendship uh, formed around a hobby that you have. Or, uh, you know, a friend from work, it's it's forged around the work that you do together. Or your studies, your time at William and Mary. Friendships are forged around something. And the primary posture of a friendship is that we're side by side together enjoying something outside of us. But he says the primary picture of a romantic relationship is not two people side by side looking out, but two people face to face looking at each other. Because at the heart of that relationship is not something on the outside, but it is that other person. It is the most intimate of relationships. And that's what James is saying when he says that we are to have this kind of relationship with our God. When Scripture says God is our husband and we are His spouse, he says it is this kind of face-to-face relationship and it's to go deep. Now imagine what it's like in your own marriage, or if you're not married as you might imagine the situation playing out. In our marriage, you know, you're in relationship with this person. It's meant to go deep, but let's say this happens. You know, a husband shows up uh, at dinner, uh, meets his wife, and it's their anniversary. And he hands her this bouquet of beautiful flowers, and she says, "These are these are beautiful. Thank you. They're my favorite flowers." And he says, "I know. Um, I did it because you know it's my duty, right? (laughs) It's our anniversary, and you know, frankly, good husbands give." Their wife's flowers on their anniversary. You know, you can hear the, you know, uh, romance of that moment just sort of, you know, escaping by the second, right? Because why? I mean, what is the wife going to say? I don't, just want, I don't just want your duty. I want your heart. I want you. Now, if you're married, you know that duty is an incredibly important part of marriage. It is. There's nothing wrong with that. But duty is never the end, right? What does duty do? It comes up and bolsters our hearts when we struggle. But the, but the point of marriage is that intimacy, that love. And the wife rightly looks at him and says, I don't, just, I don't want your duty flowers. Or, uh, you know, imagine this picture. Maybe you've had this experience uh, a, as a student or you, you've had a mentor in some other aspect of life. For me, the way I experienced it and saw it was, was in seminary. And in seminary, you know, you'll have these uh, beloved professors, these guys that are, they're incredibly wise, you love their classes, you, you, you just, you, you, you know, you're in grad school because you, you, you want to pursue that subject and, and you, you just love their classes. And you know what it's like, that feeling where you can actually go to that favorite professor and he's got office hours and he opens his office door and he says, yeah, come on in, sit down, let's talk about it. And you get to ask him your questions about class. And you get to pick his brain. And you walk out of that just thinking, that professor's the greatest. And you sit around at lunch with your friends and you're like, don't you just love Professor so-and-so? And you guys are like, yeah, he's great. Okay, so that same professor goes home. Has dinner with his wife. His wife asks him something. He says, you know... Let me tell you, I'm glad to share with you my theological wisdom at any point. You can ask me any theological question you want. I'm glad to sit down and talk about it for hours, but that's as deep as it goes. How's that spouse going to respond? She's going to look at him and say, of course I want your theological knowledge, but I want the rest of you too. See, that very thing that makes you a great professor on campus isn't enough when you come into your marriage because I don't just want your brain and your office availability. I want you. Right? Because that's what a marriage is about. So when we look at this picture of God, of our relationship with Him and going deep, that's what He's saying to us. He wants that kind of relationship with us, that kind of depth and that kind of intimacy. He says that's what marriage has been is designed to be. And He says that's what our relationship with God is designed to be. And so He says, draw near. And God draws near to you. He says, purify your hearts. Turn from your sin. At the deepest levels of your affection and your allegiance, don't just stop doing stuff. Love something different. Don't just stop, uh, you know, doing these things in your life. God says to us, "Love me above all, because I love you." If you really think about it, I think it makes us. It's got to make us a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? Because here's the thing. We can say, clean clean your hands, cleanse your hands, clean up the exteriors of your life. And to some degree, maybe we can be, at least for a time, successful doing it. But when God looks at us and He says, purify your heart, He says, I want your heart. You know, you can't fake that. Not in front of God. Not who sees the depths of our heart. Maybe you're able to do that with your spouse for a while, but you can't do it with your God. He says, purify your heart. I want all of you. And we're kind of caught, aren't we? I mean, this all started with all these things wrestling around in our lives. The first six verses of James chapter 4 and talking about the reality of our struggle. And then we come to James' call to us and he says, Look, you need to live a life of repentance. Go under, go near, go deep. When we get down to the heart of it, what do we see? We can't fully step there. You know, he says, Purify our hearts. We make we move in that direction, but how are we going to clean? How are we going to cleanse that when we are people of such divided hearts? The psalmist David in Psalm fifty one says it this way: "Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me." James points us to God's provision for us in our dilemma, and he points us in that. In a couple different places. He kind of bookends these verses we've been concentrating on with verse 6 and verse 10. Verse 6, he says this, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In verse 10, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. What does James bracket all of this with this call to repentance, this reminder? That God meets us at our very point of need always with His ongoing grace for us. Even as He says, come under and come near and go deep. He says, you've got to understand first that I have come near and I have gone deep for you. Because that is what we find in Jesus. Not a God who holds Himself aloof and waits for us to approach Him at His throne, but one who comes after us. Jesus who submits Himself perfectly to the Father right to the very end. Right to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is on the verge of doing what He's been called to do. Coming and going to the cross so that He can win our forgiveness and our healing. And if He does not do that, the universe is going to run off its rails because we will be lost forever. And He knows the weight of what He's about to bear and He prays this... Lord, if it is possible, take this cup away from me. Don't make me do this. But not my will, Lord, but yours. Coming under for us. Coming near for us. That Jesus who said, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. That Jesus who says, God is my Father and He is your Father now too. Jesus who said, it is not enough for God to stay a distant from us, but He must come near He's come to save and to seek the lost. And the God who goes deep for us. Jesus, whose heart was broken, that ours might be healed. Jesus, who takes on the weight of our sin, that it might be lifted from us. Jesus, who takes on the penalty of our sin, that we might fully and finally be forgiven in Jesus. James reminds us again. That even for us as struggling Christians in the middle of our faltering repentance, he says, we always come back to God's provision for us. He says, God is the one who initiates with us. Your repentance is never good enough. It never goes deep enough. It never draws you close enough. He says, God has come for us. So He brings it back into our laps, and now we can take it. We can look and hear what He says, because that gospel is always true of us. And so He says this, as we seek to live in it, you can be free now to do these things, to go under, go near, to go deep. Because Christ has come for you. Let's pray. Father, as we are people very much struggling with sin in our lives, very much feeling at times the weight of the war within us, Lord, may we be people who continually come back to the very heart and hope and promise of the gospel of Christ, dead, buried, but raised again to new life for us. Forgiveness won for us, bought for us, given to us. And may the hope of that gospel free us in our very real struggle to step into lives of dependent repentance, turning away and turning towards. May we be quick to go under your lordship, to submit ourselves to you. May we be quick to go near, for you have drawn near to us. May we be quick to go deep, to offer before you the very depths of our heart that you might come in and cleanse them. So Lord, we hold on this morning to this promise you hold out to us. Draw near to God. He will draw near to us. Help us to draw near to you. And would you draw near to us? And we ask it because you promise it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.